So we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you guys will, please stand as we always do to read God's word to give it honor. Philippians 3, we'll be in uh, verse 12. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to my own, because Christ Jesus has made his own, made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walked as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The Word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for bringing us all here, getting us into Your community that we could come together, gather with one another to worship Your name. Thank You for this passage that You've given to us, this call as we begin the new year, to press on into you, to press on to know Christ more. Um, Father, I pray that we may open our hearts this morning to your word, that we may uh, learn from your spirit, and that um, above all, Lord, you may be glorified this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to open this morning with a quote uh, that a pastor gave to a crowd of people. Um, We all love quotes, right? So here's one that I thought was pretty impactful, where he implored the audience, uh, don't waste your life. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or attend a fine school. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. End quote. Today we live in a world that's constantly trying to tell us to focus on today, to focus on the now. Billions of dollars are spent in advertisements trying to get you to buy these things, trying to tell you that you need more, that you need more stuff. But all this is stuff that's going to perish, that you need more things that are actually going to satisfy, make you happy, provide success. But in Philippians 3, Paul, like that pastor, is encouraging us that as we step into this new year, don't fall for it. Don't waste your life chasing after things that will perish, but press on towards something glorious. As we begin 2019, it's a time when people are going to be setting goals, resolutions, mainly focusing on how they can improve their lives. How can they make their lives better? 
But in this passage, we see what Paul strove after, how he wanted to make his life better. Last week, Brandon talked about seeing Christ as our treasure and how that impacts both our living and our dying. This week, we're going to continue in Philippians, moving on to chapter 3, where we get another example of what Paul means by looking at this thing or this idea of to live as Christ. In verses 3 through 11, Paul just finished describing to the Philippians where he receives his salvation and what are some of these glorious things that he's not only willing to die for, but also to live for. For Paul, this was knowing Christ, his work, redemption, and resurrection. It was becoming like Christ in both his suffering and his righteousness, and being ultimately glorified in Christ and becoming perfect. These were the things that Paul wanted. These are the things that he pressed on for. These are the things he pressed on towards. He pressed on toward the prize that will not perish. So that's the encouragement we have today for us, to press on, press on toward this prize. Press on with one another. Press on without being distracted by the things of the earth that don't matter. Press on to pursue Christ. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. Paul's encouragement, including the motivation and method to press on. So say that again. Paul's encouragement, including the motivation and method to press on. There are three points I'd like us to focus on here. The first is an encouragement to press on toward the goal. The second is looking at an encouragement to press on together. And the third point is an encouragement to press on totally focused. So we're going to jump right into the first point here, an encouragement to press on toward the goal. We open up the passage, and without missing a beat, Paul gets right into it. In verses 12 through 16, we see a call from Paul to do this thing called press on. He encourages the church at Philippi to press on toward the goal. Paul does this by first describing the motivation for pressing on, but then he also describes the method to press on. So we're going to start by looking at the motivation. What motivated Paul to press on towards this goal? And we see that immediately back in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What is that this that Paul is talking about? That this in this passage is this, that he's not completed his sanctification yet. He has not completed the process of becoming like Christ. Meaning that despite the advances, despite all the successes that he's had in the life, despite the undoubtable growth that he has achieved, Paul still did not consider himself to be perfect. He looked at the standard that was set by Christ and realized that he was still lacking. Not that I've already tamed this or am already perfect. Paul did not consider himself perfect. This is something we can all relate to. Who here is currently six for six on their New Year's resolutions? Or how many of us have already kind of dropped the wagon a little bit? That's all right. This is an encouragement for us. It's encouragement for us who believe because Paul did not consider himself perfect. Even though this brother wrote 13 books of the New Testament planted churches all across Asia Minor, saw several people be converted because of the words he was preaching, debated people in the loudest arena, or in the largest arenas, and the biggest stages, some of the most influential people of his time, he still was not perfect. He wanted to make that abundantly clear to all the readers that he did not consider himself perfect. So much so that even in verse 13, he repeats it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So what we see in our brother Paul is that he saw a gap. 
he recognized that he was not yet perfect. And that was one of the motors that, motivators that inspired him to press on. So what about us? As we look at 2018, how have we not been perfect? Was it laziness in the workplace or at home? Failure to love your spouse, your children? Neglect to your relationship with God? Was it falling back into alcoholism, drugs, lust, fits of anger? We also see this gap in our lives. We see Christ, we look at the example he set, and we know that we are not there yet. We know that we are not what we should be. But we can take heart. Verse 12, we can read again, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The other thing that we see that motivated Paul to press on towards this goal, which is Christ, is the realization of our position in Christ. Christ has made us his own, and we are his. So what does that mean to own something? Uh, Recently, I had the opportunity to buy a house. It's quite horrifying. Well, I guess I don't technically own it. The bank owns it. In 30 years, I'll own it. Sorry, Dave Ramsey, but... um, (laughs) um, But still, the idea is the same. The house is mine to do with as I will. I own this house, and with that ownership comes a level of care and affection. I care about this house more so than the rental. Sorry, Joe and Natalie. Um, But but, um, I own this house, and so I'm going to be spending a lot of my time there. I'm going to be spending a lot of my money in this house, and so I'm going to care for it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to fix it up. I'm going to make sure that it's being maintained correctly. But I also have this control over the house now that you don't have as a rental. Uh, my mom actually came up, and as mothers do, was telling me how everything in my house needed to be arranged, where to put this, where the pot should go, um, what rugs should I get, what colors should my house be. Um, but then she finally just stopped and said, you know, Tyler, this house is yours. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's true. It's my house. Um, I have ownership over this house. So that's something that it means with ownership. There's an affection there because it's yours, but there's also this ability to do with it what you will. We also see this theme of ownership throughout Scripture. In Romans 6, we see a transfer of ownership from us. We are transferred from being slaves to sin to now being slaves of God. When we were slaves to sin, this led to death. Sin was a horrible master. It literally drove us to our death. But now, to those who have faith in Christ, we find ourselves as being slaves to God. And that being a slave to God means it leads to our sanctification, to our eternal life. It leads to us being like Christ and being with Christ forever. Also in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, we see a covenant that's made to Israel, and now through Christ gets passed on to us. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Ownership. God is claiming those whom he has saved as his own. We're in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We see, you are not your own. You are bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. All of these verses have one theme in common. You were bought and paid for, and you belong to another. 
the God of the universe who created you and made you also paid the highest price for you. He did this by dying for us. He did this not so that we could stay slaves to sin, to stay living a life that was meaningless and that led to death, but he saved us for a purpose. And that purpose is to be transformed into the image of his son. In other translations, that phrase, because Christ made me his own, that because could also be translated into the statement for which. So it instead reads, for which Christ has made me his own. The difference here is subtle, but the motivator then becomes, it's not only the thought of being owned by Christ that encourages us to press on, but it's the thought that we are owned by Christ for this very reason to press on. We are owned to become like Christ, for which we are owned. Some of us need to stop and remember the simple but profound truth that you are not your own, but you were bought by the blood of Christ. Not because of your works or your good deeds, but it's by faith, faith in our Savior, that we now have a position of being declared righteous before God and under the ownership of Christ. Not as objects, not as tools, but as sons and daughters of the King. And if this isn't you, if you're still a slave to sin, I invite you to put your faith in Christ, to see how you fall short, just like everyone else here, and recognize that you need a Savior. Today could be the day that you also become a son or daughter. So Paul, understanding that one, he's not perfect, and two, understanding that God intends him to be perfect, comes to this conclusion that he will press on. He presses on not because he's seeking to earn the position of son, but because he has the position of son. There's another pastor who stated it, that there's this importance to draw a distinction between two things. The first thing is Paul's position in Christ, which is received by faith and faith alone, and provides the power and the desire to change the second thing, which is our condition in Christ. Paul's condition was that of lacking perfection. He looked at Christ and looked at himself and saw this discrepancy. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that this realization actually inspires action. We do not need to seek to earn our position by changing our condition, but we seek to have our condition match our position. I'm going to say that again. We do not seek to earn our position by changing our condition, but we seek to have our condition match our position. This is what motivates us to press on. So the question comes, does it? Does this truth awaken a desire in you to draw closer to Christ, to turn off the TV at night and pick up the Bible, to turn off the radio in the car and spend time in prayer, to show more patience, be more loving, work harder? What does pressing on look like to you? Is it just another list of things to do, another demand on your time? How does it look like? What does it look like to press on? And Paul answers this in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul reemphasizes what he is not, that he is not yet perfect, and then he tells us how to press on. He begins with this phrase, one thing I do. Here is where we get the method for how to press on towards a goal. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
The first thing Paul does as he prepares to press on is forgetting what lies behind. At a new year, this is a time to become retrospective, right? We look back at what this last year was, and we think about how do we want to improve? What are things that we did? What are things that we're excited about? What are things that we want to change? So is Paul saying that this is wrong? That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that if this idea of looking back and becoming retrospective is preventing you from being able to move forward, then you need to let that go. That's not beneficial anymore. There are mainly there are a few different ways that we can be looking back in a way that prevents us going forward. One way of looking back is being so paralyzed by the sin and shame that we see in our lives. When you look back at the sin that you did uh, yesterday, this morning, last week, already this year, this can be crippling. This can, this can just weigh you down. Or maybe it's not the sin since you've met Christ. Maybe it's a sin from your past before Christ. Maybe it's the things you did, the guilt that just weighs on you, that you feel like, I can't move forward. I can't become like Christ because I have all of this weight and baggage that there's no way that Christ can take care of that. We begin to see our sin as greater than our Christ. Um, All these weighs on our hearts, it weighs on us and it keeps us from being able to run after Christ. To that, we must remember that our sins are forgiven. They are not greater than our Savior, and that Christ has died to set us free. Do you remember that? Do you believe that? That your sin is as far as removed as the East is from the West. That God does not see your past mistakes, but instead seizes the price that his Son paid with his own righteousness. Another way that we can have looking back prevent us from pushing on forward is when we're so focused on our past successes, our past victories. We no longer see our need to continue to strive. We think we've made it. The rest of our life then becomes trying to defend to other people that, no, I'm actually good enough, and I should be telling you what to do. Um, We adopt this sort of pragmatic perfectionism where we think we are good enough, where we no longer see a need to keep striving, but we're so focused on the things that we're doing better than everybody else and so busy trying to defend ourselves that we stop pressing on towards the prize. We're so busy looking back at all the good things we've done, all the good things we see in our lives, and no longer realize that the goal is set forth in Christ. The goal is not our own idea of perfection, is not being better than those around you, but set forth in Christ. So the first step toward pressing on is to not be hindered by what's in the past but to learn from it, let it go. And this is what prepares Paul to press on. The next thing Paul does as he presses on is he strains. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The word that Paul uses here for straining is pretty interesting. It's this idea of like stretch, stretch, right? We wouldn't say that in English, like, hey, go stretch, stretch for that cup, right? No, it's this idea of like intense effort, it's the idea of going after something with everything inside of you. You can think of like just about any action movie. At some point, there's going to be that scene where this hero has to pretty much lay it all on the line to achieve the goal. It might be to grab a ledge, save a person, catch an object. But for me, the illustration that comes to mind the most is Lord of the Rings. In this film, for those of you who haven't seen it, Frodo and Sam, it's the last scene in the third movie. And, well, not the last scene, because there's like eight endings, but... One of, the, one of the endings there. 
and there's this giant volcano. And Frodo is fighting for the ring, and he ends up falling over the ledge. But thankfully, he's able to grab onto the ledge, and his friend Sam is now there. And Sam comes to the ledge, and he looks down, and he can tell he's not going to be able to reach to Frodo. But he tries anyways. So he reaches down, and the music is starting to crescendo. It's starting to show that this is a big moment. And Sam's reaching. Frodo's trying to reach. Sam heroically yells at his friend, reach! It's, it's really good. And with one last effort, Frodo gives everything he has. He puts his bloody hand into Sam's, and they lock, lock arms, and Sam's able to pull him up. This is the type of language that Paul's using here. It's this intense effort. It's something that as if everything depends on it. To not reach it would mean you lose everything. That's the kind of straining. It's something that's tough. It's straining that requires discipline and hard work. That's what Paul's talking about. But what is Paul straining towards? In verse 14, we see it. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wants to achieve the goal. He wants the prize. So what is the goal and the prize? It's a thing that he said he didn't have back in verse 12. I press on to make it my own. He, what he wanted is he wanted to be with Christ and to be like Christ. Paul had experienced Christ first on the road to Damascus, then countless more times in his life. He had seen sick people be healed. He had healed sick people himself. He'd been bitten by a poisonous stake and lived. He had been shipwrecked and beaten and survived, delivered from prison. But most importantly, Paul had seen spiritually dead people be brought back to life. He had been with Christ, experienced Christ, and he wanted more. He wanted more of Christ. That was his desire. That was his goal. That was his prize. That was what he was aiming for more of Christ. Isn't that a good goal for us here in 2019? More of Christ? This isn't the first or only time Paul has used this language, but he also uses it in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul knew the goal that he was trying to achieve was hard. That it would take extreme effort, discipline, but he also knew that it was worth it. He was compelled by the love of Christ, his ownership and desire to know Christ more through the gospel, to strain in such a way, to press on in such a way that he would receive the prize. In verses 15 and 16, Paul uses a little play on words here to conclude his point and sort of poke fun at those who believe that by circumcision, by the law, by what they've, and Christ, that they've achieved this level of perfection. Verse 15 says, let those who are mature think this way. The word mature there actually is the same word Paul uses in verse 12 for perfect. So what Paul is saying is, those of you who are perfect, think like this. Those of you who are perfect, realize you're not perfect. It's, it's kind of a funny thing to say to people, but he's preaching to people who honestly believe that they had achieved it, that they had made it to the end. He's telling them, no, the real people who've made it to the end are those who know they are not perfect, who look at Christ and see that there's still something more that we should be straining on to, that there's more that we should be reaching for to achieve our maturity. 
This is our job. This is our duty to carry out, to hold true to the desire that God himself has placed in us. So what does this mean? What does all this talk about straining for the prize, pressing on, actually mean? It means that no one becomes godly by accident. Godliness is not, godliness or being like Christ is a struggle of everyday disciplines that allow us to continually become more like Christ. They continually allow us to change our condition to let it match our position. All of this is empowered and motivated by God and the Spirit to move forward. So in this new year, how will you strain? What goals will you set? If your goals do not include a desire to reach the imperishable prize, to become more like Christ, and to know Christ more, then there may need to be some evaluation that occurs. Some of us may have started this year waiting for God to come down and make us more godly. Lord, I know I could pray, or maybe this morning I'll just try to put your Bible under my pillow and absorb through osmosis as I fall asleep again. Who's been there? Get up in the morning to read and not conk out again. A common idea in our culture is this idea of let go and let God. But that's not what God has commanded us. He's called us to pursue, to strain, to press on. But thankfully, we don't have to do this alone. And that leads us to our second point in verse 17. That was the longest point. The rest of these are faster. Don't worry. Um, Our second point here in verse 17 is Paul gives an encouragement to press on together. Do you struggle to understand what pressing on looks like in your life? I know I have. Uh, There have been several times in my life where I have even have the desire that I want to be more like Christ. I just don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to achieve that. I know that there's something missing. I just don't know how to get that into my life. Thankfully, Paul has some words here for us. He says you don't have to try to do it by yourself. You don't need to be this lone ranger trying to figure out this whole Christian thing all on your own, but look to examples. Look to examples he set forth. Look to the examples in other people around you, like Timothy and Epaphroditus that Paul just talked about in chapter 2. And not only does Paul encourage the Philippians to look to his example, to look to these other leaders' examples, but encourages them to look to anyone's example, look to anyone who is striving after the same goal. It's important to understand here what Paul's saying It almost seems arrogant, right? It seems arrogant to say those phrases, imitate me. But what Paul's not saying here is that he is the target, that the goal to be like Paul is the goal that we should have in our lives. No, what he's saying is that Christ is the goal. He is the prize. Having our lives become to him is the glorification that we'll receive at the end times when we finally become the perfect image bearers that God intends. That's the standard that we're striving for. However, what Paul is saying is, follow me as I try to get there. Follow other people who are striving after that same goal. And, um, throughout Scripture, we see many ways in which Christ is the example we are to follow. In dealing with temptation in Matthew 4, in loving the unlovable and showing grace to those who wish you harm, in patience, gentleness, kindness, humility, all of these things we see Christ is the ultimate example for godliness. He's the ultimate example, the mark that we are to aim for. However, there's one regard in which Christ is not the ultimate example. That almost seems blasphemous, right? To think that there's something that Christ is not the best example in. But that's in this idea of being imperfect, straining towards perfection. Christ was perfect, meaning he never had to repent of sin. 
He never had to recognize his own imperfection and strive for something better. He was always perfect. That's why he's the goal. That's why he's what we're aiming for. Because of this, Paul and other leaders of the faith actually become better examples for us to follow in this one regard because they have fallen. Like us, they have failed. And it's to them that we can look to for guidance at how to work through our imperfections, seeing how they turn to Christ, how they seek forgiveness, and how they press on towards becoming sanctified or being like Christ. We can illustrate this through imagining the Christian life as like a mountaintop. It's a mountain that you're seeking to climb. You want to get to the top of the mountain, and at the top of that mountain is, is Christ. That's the goal. That's the target. That's what you're aiming for. You want to get to that state to where you are like Christ. You are with Christ. From his vantage point, Christ helps us tremendously on getting there. He tells us the path to take. He warns us of pitfalls, of these things that can distract us. He shows us the way up, and he is there to help and encourage us and guide us to the top of the mountain. However, he's still not on the path with us. He is still perfect. He was still someone who is at the top of the mountain and has always been at the top of the mountain. But thankfully, God knew that, and he didn't leave us there to just trying to see this this perfect being and us trying to emulate that all on our own. But God actually shows such rich mercy in giving us other people that we can look to for this climb. We see this happening that God gives us the church. He gives us brothers and sisters that we can emulate, that we can see as examples in our lives to help show us what does it look like to avoid these certain pitfalls What does it look like to place our foot here but not here? That we could see the people that are just right above us in this pathway to getting to the top of the mountain. We see this happening so much in the church today. We have several men and women in the church universal who spent so much of their time to write about their failures, publicly confess their sin, and show other people how to repent and turn from it. That is a huge gift and blessing from God. To be an encouragement Uh, in this way is something that helps so many other people across the church. However, we also see this happening here at the crossing. I see it happening in life group. I see this happening in journey group when we get together to talk about the ways that we fail, not to throw ourselves a pity party, but as a way that we can come together with one another and say, oh yeah, I've struggled with that as well. Here's how how I overcame that by the power of Christ. Or here's some things that can help you in this quest to seek that perfection. Or in life group, Um, We have one example with Matt and Jess Whitney. Um, It's just been a joy to be in life group with them uh, over this last past year. But there's been several struggles and hardships that our group's endured. And it's been so beneficial to have someone in our group that I can look to to say, okay, this is something that we could example. This is what it looks like to love these people that are hurting right now. This is what it looks like to serve these people that are hurting right now. Having those examples around us amidst the broken and fallen world when I don't want to be patient and seeing someone else be patient helps us. It's a gift that God has given us. This is all to try to become more and more like Christ. This is what we're trying to seek. This is our goal. So this brings up the question, who in your life are your examples? Who do you have that you can emulate your life off of? I know there's some of my examples. I mentioned the Whitney's. We have Daniel Smith, Max, and my friend Doug. There's all these people around that um, I can look to as examples of what does it look like to follow Christ. Despite their imperfections, none of them are doing it perfectly, 
but they're showing me how in my imperfection, I too can be straining towards this prize. So think about who are yours? Who do you have in your life that you can look to? Another point that realizes, and this is a scary one, is that you may be someone else's example. Who around here are looking at you and thinking, how are you walking? How are you straining? And thinking, oh, that's what it looks like to strain after Christ. This is something that can be, hopefully is both an encouragement that what you're doing in your life matters. The way you perform, the way that you're motivated, the way that you pursue Christ, it matters beyond just yourself. You're not doing it just on your own, but you're doing it because there's a group of people who may be watching you, trying to emulate you, not watching to judge you, but watching because they want to follow you as you follow Christ. That's, that's a scary thought for me. Um, I know how I fail, and I know how I mess up, but we, like Paul, can say we know we're not perfect. We know we need grace, but we're going to pursue and strain on towards this goal. So very thankful for that grace right now. The mission of pressing on is not just for the individual. It's for the church. We're all called to press on together, to encourage one another, to show one another the way, to climb up to this mountain so that we can all become like Christ. We can all be straining for the prize, doing this all together. Paul then goes to describe one final dichotomy between those who are straining towards the prize and those who aren't. And this brings us to our third point. Encouragement from Paul to press on totally focused. In verse 18, we're introduced to a group of people who are still enemies of God, who don't desire to become like Christ, who don't desire to press on toward the goal. The question becomes, why is that? Paul states it with three simple points. He says their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. So the first thought, their God is their belly, is this. They are ruled by their own desires. And still being slaves to sin, their desires are killing them. They cannot say no to their desires, and they are passionately pursuing those desires at whatever cost. They glory in their shame. These are people who refuse to be denounced for what they do. They'll not tolerate anyone, even God, telling them what is right and what is wrong. Instead, they take that upon themselves And then they glory or they boast or they're happy about all the ways that they're doing wrong things that other people say are wrong, but in their own minds they have said are right. And finally, their minds are set on earthly things. They're wrapped up in the world. They're so caught up in the joys that this world has to offer, they have no desire to want to pursue the riches that are in Christ, but are stuck building kingdoms here that won't last. You don't have to look very far to see people who fit this bill. Between our politicians, our celebrities, our athletes, we see these people all around us. We see them among us. This also can be illustrated in a character in a sequel to The Pilgrim's Progress. For those of you who don't know The Pilgrim's Progress, it's a story about this man, Christian, on his way to the celestial city. The celestial city's heaven. So it's basically a bunch of stories and allegories used to describe the Christian life. There's a sequel to that book where it's his wife who's actually following her husband now to the celestial city as well. And as she's going through, she comes across this man. The man's called the man in the muck. Um, It's pretty gross. Muck is as gross as it sounds. If you don't know what muck is, it's it's literally described as dirt, rubbish, 
filth, manure. Um, so it's this gross things. And as this um, person trying to head towards the celestial city, make her way towards heaven, comes across this man just in the muck. She sees him there with his rake, just raking the mucks, eyes fixed down, focused on the position that he finds himself in. You see this man with the rake, he's so absorbed with what he's doing. He's so focused on that. He's so focused on just being in his own filth that he doesn't want anything to do with anything outside of it. He doesn't even realize he's in the muck at this point. He just thinks that this is life. So even when someone else comes and offers him the crown, which is essentially salvation, he won't look up from it. His eyes are fixed on the muck, on the dirt and the filth. He wants nothing to do with the crown. He doesn't want to get out of it. He's content with where he's at. These are not always people who are openly rebellious. These are people who may say things like, Jesus is a pretty cool guy. Um, He says a lot of great things. He has a lot of good points for us to just follow in general. Um, However, Paul still calls it for what it is, that the fact that these people are not gripped by the desire to know Christ more, to pursue him, demonstrates that their position has not been changed that they are still enemies with God and their end is destruction. And this causes Paul to weep. To weep for the souls of those who are perishing, but also to weep for the church who so quickly can be led by these things. For all the fears we have as Christians about condemnation coming to America, about not getting to bake cakes or having to bake cakes, uh, the real fear is this, um, that the culture is busy, is built, is that we're being wrapped up into a culture that's built on meeting our desires in the quickest and cheapest way possible. That we too can't say no to the sin and desires that we see in our lives. That this culture is built on inspiring a self-obsession that lets you define for yourself what is right and what is wrong. That we no longer look to God's law to define that for us, but we seek to set that in our own minds. And then we glory in this new standard that we have set. This culture that's constantly trying to fix our eyes on pleasures that are being offered in this world. I hope and pray that we're not being consumed by these things, or else we'll no longer be the church. There's a danger here for the church and her people, but Paul gives us the solution. He shows us how we can be active examples against being distracted by this world, but what Paul, by what Paul talks about as being a citizen of heaven. We don't hear that very often, right? You're a citizen of heaven. Focus on heaven. Think about heaven. Um, One reason we don't hear about that very often is heaven is literally just so great that we have no way to describe it. Every time it's described, it's usually described by two things. One, all the things it's not, which is all the junky things in this life, those aren't going to be in heaven. And the second thing is, is that God himself will be there. Those are what we have with heaven. So just the lack of clarity about what that's going to look like sometimes causes us not to think about heaven. However, another reason why we may not be considering heaven is because we are wrapped up in the temporary. We are wrapped up in just what this world has to offer. This culture spends its time hiding away those who are about to die in nursing homes. The ads and TVs talks about how you can feel younger, feel better, get more stuff now. Focus on retirement. Focus on making your life as good as you possibly can now. Spend your days toiling and striving to make something great of yourself right now. 
But those of us who struggle with pressing on, who struggle with the desire to want to be more like Christ should consider this, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We don't belong here. We, don't be- we belong to a kingdom that's infinitely better than anything we can imagine, and that kingdom is never going to go through a government shutdown. We don't have to worry about that. I remember when I was younger, I used to think about what would happen when we'd get to heaven, and it kind of bummed me out. I had a very bad idea, I guess, of what heaven was, but um, I would look around at the world and all the things I haven't been able to do yet. I think, God, heaven sounds pretty good, but there's really a lot of things I'd like to wrap up here first. Um, I'd like to button a few things up, experience a few more things, and then you could come back and we can go to heaven and that'll be great. That used to be the thought process that I had, but the truth is so much greater and so much more glorious. Psalm 1611 speaks the truth. It says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or John 10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The lies of the world say that you won't be fulfilled by God that God isn't enough, when the reality is the exact opposite. The world's not enough. You will never be fulfilled by the world. God is the only glorious thing in this universe that it can actually fulfill us, that can actually make our life mean something. And the crazy thing is he desires for us to be with him. He wants us to come to him, so much so that he promises. He promises to give us the prize. He promises to finally transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's what we're striving for so much is to be like Christ, right? To be like Christ and be with Christ. And we see God promises that. He's like, I will do this. That's the final step of the process of salvation. We start by being chosen and called by God. Then we receive him by faith. We're justified, declared righteous, We're then even adopted as sons and daughters. And then we press on in this process of sanctification. Where it finally culminates, when we finally go to be with the Lord, it ends in this idea called glorification. Where God takes this perishable body and turns it into something imperishable. Where we finally become that perfect image bearer. Where we finally get to be able to know Christ fully, be known by him fully where we get to dwell in his presence forever. This isn't an easy task. Pressing on is not easy, and reaching the prize is not easy. But we can be confident that the Lord himself will do it by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's a promise that's guaranteed by the very power of God that allows him to subject all of creation to do what he wills. The very sovereignty of God is the promise by which he says, I will do this thing. The fact that I can control all of the universe means I will take on this impossible task of making you perfect. I will do that. I promise you I will do that. By the very reasons that you have a universe, have a creation, I promise you will get there. We know that one day we're going to achieve the goal, that one day we'll reach the prize because God himself says that he will do it. I'd like to now close looking at another passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So it starts with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
we have so many heroes of the faith that we can look back to in scriptures. That's what this passage is talking about. All those people that have come before that we can now look to as examples of what did it look like to follow Christ? What did it look like to strain after this prize? But we also have several witnesses here. Look around you, church. This is a room full of witnesses, of people who can witness to the power, who are citizens of heaven, and can testify to the work that God is doing in each of their lives. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What this means is we forget what lies behind. We forget about our past failures, our past mistakes. We forget about our past successes, about the sin that used to cling to us or the pride that just weighs us down. We forget about those things. We leave them behind. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run, press on, strain. It's not easy. This is a race a race that requires endurance and effort and dedication. So we press on, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's our example. We press on towards him because he is the goal, the prize, the finish line, the greatest treasure, the most majestic truth. He is what we're seeking after. He is what we're setting our eyes on. He is what we're running towards. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like Jesus, this world is in our home. The struggles, the difficulties will all fall away because our God is seated on his throne. Our mediator is by his side, encouraging us to press on. Press on toward the goal. Press on toward the prize. Press on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the realities that you have called us to be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you that we don't need to come to you with any misconception about who we are or what we are. You know how we are imperfect. You know that we fail, yet you still have accepted us and called us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us to strain for this. Help us to strive to give maximum effort to this calling that we have received and help us to do this together. Not getting distracted by the world, but the focus, Lord, a focus on you, on the joy that is before you, on the joy that we will receive when we get to be with you, and on the prize and the fact that we too will get to become children of God. Lord, let us press on to this, and let us take heart that we eventually will make it there, that we get to be with you for eternity, all because of the work that your Son did for us on the cross. And it's by his name that we pray. Amen.